It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We've talked before on the podcast about how often we hear from listeners who are just not satisfied with a choice between the Democrats and the Republicans this year. Well, over the weekend in Orlando, Florida, a third party picked a third candidate. The nominee for President of the United States, Governor Gary... Johnson. Former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson will lead the Libertarian Party ticket this election year. We're going to talk about what the party wants, what votes it could attract, and what it could all mean for the larger race. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Journalist emeritus, it says here. Journalist emeritus. <laughs> okay, so I feel like we should just start by saying it's libertarian, not libertarian. What? People always call it the libertarians. I have never heard that. No, but I heard a lot of people on my Twitter feed who thought I was saying it's the librarian party. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's get into that, Scott. What do they, what are they? What do they stand for? Uh, they stand for the proposition that you shouldn't hurt anyone and you shouldn't take their stuff. And they think that can be enforced with a very small government presence. They favor what they would say is maximum freedom, minimum government. The way I heard somebody describe it is keep the government out of my wallet and out of my bedroom. That was actually the way uh, William Weld, the new vice presidential nominee, uh, described his own philosophy at a Republican convention some years ago. He and the the nominee for president on the libertarian ticket, Gary Johnson, are both uh, lapsed Republicans, former Republican governors, and they've now found a, a home at the top of the libertarian ticket. That's right. They both support legal abortion. They believe in equality of marriage. And the party that they want to lead, this libertarian party of our day, supports legalization of marijuana. And they, generally speaking, feel that the government should just have a relatively microscopic footprint on the culture and the economy and the society in general compared to what it has now. And in some ways, uh, the party positions that at once seemed pretty radical that the Libertarian Party has been espousing for some time have now attracted support from a majority or at least a sizable minority of the general American public. So there there has been a shift of a lot of Americans towards some of the planks of the libertarian platform. Things, like marijuana. Things like Ron mentioned, same-sex marriage, marijuana, uh, limiting government surveillance of the American people. There are other parts of the libertarian platform which may not be as attractive to a lot of mainstream voters. I went to a debate among the presidential candidates on Saturday night, and there was a serious discussion about whether there was a role for the government to play in administering driving tests, or if, if you should need a license to drive a car, or if people should just be able to drive their cars wherever they want. There was a serious debate about whether the government overstepped its bounds in the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, by, by extending the anti-discrimination provisions to private businesses. Now, Gary Johnson uh, did not espouse the most extreme points of view, uh, among the candidates there. He's he's a little bit more mainstream. He does think that driver's licenses have a role, and he, he supported the 64 Civil Rights Act. But that's one reason it took two ballots for Gary Johnson to secure the nomination at, at the convention this weekend, because there are some purist libertarians for whom Gary Johnson is not libertarian enough. I just want to go back to something else you said. Um, there's an actual debate about whether the Civil Rights Act was a good thing? There's a debate about whether the government has a role in telling private businesses they can't discriminate. Which is what the Civil Rights Act did. So, yes, it's a very real debate. Let's remember back in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed, Barry Goldwater, who was the nominee of the Republican Party at the time, also voted against the Civil Rights Act for very much the exact reasons the Libertarian Party cites today. So, 
you were at a convention for the Libertarian Party. Have you been to many of these before, Scott? This was my first, and there's no question that a lot of reporters were there for their first Libertarian Convention. This is a party that has has been largely overlooked until now, and there's a couple of reasons that it's getting a lot more attention now. One is that, as I say, some of their positions have become sort of more mainstream. But the bigger reason is that the likely nominees of the two major parties, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, have very high disapproval ratings. And here's the way uh, the chairman of the Libertarian Party, Nicholas Sarwak, described the opportunity that creates. It's kind of like when two football teams play and you kind of want both of them to lose. Maybe a meteor will hit the stadium. This is the opportunity for the American people to vote for the meteor. So that's the bumper sticker for the Libertarians. We're your meteor. If you're not happy with Trump or Clinton, come to our convention. And there's been some polling in advance of the convention uh, that showed that Gary Johnson uh, draws something like 10 percent of the support. I guess we should just say for our listeners, many of whom are overseas, where third parties and fourth parties and fifth parties are totally normal. um, America does have third parties like the Libertarians, like the Greens. The Libertarian Party has been doing this for 45 years. But in this country, we really have a duopoly. Ever since the Civil War, every president who's been elected has either been a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, There has not been a third party candidate who's come close to winning the White House for a century and a half. Has, Uh, Has a third party candidate gotten an electoral vote? Yes, George Wallace in 1968 got quite a few electoral college votes uh, as a representative of, if you will, the American Independent Party, which was really just uh, a a reincarnation of the 1948 States' Rights Party, where Strom Thurmond was the nominee. Both Wallace and Thurmond were nominally Democrats at the time, but they broke away over the civil rights issue, and they ran in one states in the Deep South, and each of them won a significant share of the Electoral College. More recently, Ross Perot won 19% of the popular vote in 1992. He's actually the, he's won more of the popular vote than any third-party candidate in over a century. But no states. But he failed to carry a single state. So it's it's very tough for a third-party candidate to, to break that duopoly lock on the White House that the Democrats and Republicans have had for a century and a half now. And why are we talking about the libertarians? Are they the biggest of America's third parties? They're the biggest now, and they expect to be on the ballot in all 50 states. There are are other parties. The Green Party uh, has a significant uh, ballot presence as well. Uh, But for folks who are looking for an option, and of course there have been a lot of folks in, say, the Republican Party who who are unhappy with Donald Trump, who talked about maybe mounting a third party campaign or an alternative campaign. Of course, uh, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg looked at it. Ballot access is a real challenge. It's a real hurdle for someone who wants to mount a campaign outside the Democratic or Republican fold. Well, there the libertarians have a sort of built-in head start because they're already on the ballot in a lot of states and they expect to be on the ballot in all 50 states in November. We don't really have a tradition of powerful third parties or coalition governments, and that's partly because of our constitution, which is quite different from the parliamentary democracies that are common around the world. There's another factor, and that is that in the United States, it's such a big country, 
uh, geographically as well as in population. And it becomes a media contest. In the last century, increasingly, we have done our politics through the media. And as a result, to be taken seriously, to really be able to compete, somebody needs to have an enormous amount of money. So Ross Perot in 1992 and 96 could be taken seriously because he was self-financing. He just wrote the checks. But there haven't been very many of those, and the Libertarian Party just can't compete in terms of money resources to get on television. And and that's one reason the Libertarians were so excited to have had this media exposure over the weekend. Another big battle for them will be, can they get a place on the debate stage in the fall when you're going to have the Republican and Democratic nominees facing off? Will there be a Libertarian candidate on the debate stage? Right now, the rules say you have to be polling at 15% to be eligible to be on the debate stage. It's possible the Libertarians could get to that 15% threshold and and secure a spot on the stage that way. They're also pursuing a legal battle, saying that 15% threshold is not the appropriate threshold. The criteria should be if you're on the ballot in enough states to theoretically win 270 electoral votes, you ought to be on the stage. Ross Perot was on the stage in 1992. They feel like if they can get Gary Johnson on the stage, they'll have a shot. Let's talk about Gary Johnson and William Weld. Who are these guys? Gary Johnson was the governor of New Mexico. William Weld was the governor of Massachusetts. Those are two quite different states, and they are really two quite different former Republicans. They both had ambitions beyond their own states, and they both found those largely frustrated by the nature of the Republican Party in that time and our time. So they're both the kind of people who feel they have a lot to contribute, who are heterodox, if you will. They have they have views all over the place. Uh, that probably sounds negative to say views all over the place, but from the standpoint of these candidates and the people who like them, you don't need someone who is ideologically pure and perfect in order to find someone who could be a good leader. And they are largely defined by their contrast from either the Republican or the Democratic fields this year. Now, Gary Johnson was the libertarian standard bearer four years ago as well. He, he was the Republican governor of New Mexico, two terms, but he was the libertarian candidate for president in 2012. And he only captured about 1% of the vote. He's hoping that the addition of William Weld as his running mate will give uh, more veneer of legitimacy, more respectability, and importantly, more media attention to the campaign this time. He'll also bring potentially more fundraising capability. Uh, Gary Johnson talked about that at the convention. He says, look, as the governor of New Mexico, I've raised over my whole career maybe $8 million as a politician. (laughs) Which can't even buy you a week of ads in the swing states. Massachusetts, though, is a larger state, significant media markets. Bill Weld has experience raising large dollar amounts, much larger than $8 million. So he does potentially bring more money into the tent as well. Again, Uh, those come with strings attached for the really doctrinaire libertarians who say, do we really want to compromise our principles for the sake of winning an extra 8, 9, 10, 12% at the the ballot box? But that's the question. Are the libertarians totally selling out here? Some will tell you that, and I think those were the people who forced the second ballot and never voted for either Johnson or Weld. Uh, They feel that ideological purity is a good thing and is something the libertarians should pursue, even if it's unpopular, such as forcing you to say, I would not have voted for the Civil Rights Act because it imposes too much governmental regulation on an individual business person. Johnson has been making an argument 
a little bit like the argument that Hillary Clinton has made in the Democratic primary contest, which is to say, look, I share the values of the Libertarian Party, but I also believe in getting stuff done. I'm also a, a practical politician. And he, he, the argument that he posed to the delegates at the convention was, I want to take your message outside what he called the treehouse, where you're having your weekly meeting now, and spread it to a much wider audience. How was that received? By the people in the treehouse. <laughs> well, the the you know, <laughs> the folks the folks that had the sign on the treehouse that said "keep out" yes. are not happy about it. Yes, the I folks think. that actually want to reach a wider audience made Gary Johnson the nominee of the Libertarian Party. I saw a tweet over the weekend from uh, a Senate candidate uh, from North Carolina, Libertarian, who tweeted out. I wanted somebody else, but I will support my party's nominee, which is <laughs> exactly what... You've been hearing that a lot, haven't you, I Jan? have been hearing that a lot from mostly Republicans in Congress. Uh, but it was it was sort of a charming uh, parallel. <laughs> yeah, well, part, I guess that's part of the... Uh, Part of growing up to be a big-time political party is striking those kinds of compromise. One other political party we should at least talk about, they didn't have a convention this weekend, but the Green Party and and their candidate, Jill Stein. Now, the Green Party goes back in history to the beginning of the environmental movement. There are Green Parties in Europe. There are Green Parties around the world. And it is about prioritizing the earth, prioritizing protecting the natural environment. Now, that leads into a lot of other issues as well. How do you generate energy? Which is the method to use that does the least violence to the planet? And that, of course, is a good starting point for any political party to emphasize one thing. We have also had peace parties. We have also had, you know, parties that were, uh, you know, free silver or specific issues like that. Free silver being an alternative to the money system of that time. So it is a way to start and then build out from that to attract people who would be perhaps more interested in economic issues than environmental issues, but like Jill Stein's positions there too. And that has just not caught fire yet. Uh, she got about 400,000 votes in 2012. She's expected to be the nominee again this year for the Green Party. And perhaps the same dynamics that are helping the Libertarian Party gain legitimacy in the eyes of many voters will make particularly Bernie Sanders supporters look at Jill Stein. Let's the other consideration here, Tam, of course, is even if you don't garner a huge number of votes, maybe just, say, 537 votes in a particular state, you can play an important role, as You're the Green talking. Party did in, in Florida in, in 2000. And, and so one strategic question, obviously all these third-party candidates will tell you they're in it uh, to win. They're not they, they, spoilers. They're not, they're, not, they're not running as oh, spoilers. No. Never, never want to think of ourselves as Ralph Nader. But strategically, if they don't actually capture the White House, might they still play a role by taking votes away from one of the major parties, and which party are they likely to pull votes away from? And in the case of the Libertarians, with a couple of Republicans... At the top, former Republicans at the top of the ticket, you might expect them to draw more heavily from Republicans, but not necessarily because some of these positions that the libertarians have taken, like on same-sex marriage and their plank on abortion, which was subject to some debate and left intact over the weekend, is that they're basically staying out of it, which I guess is effectively a, a favor of abortion rights, but they, they would be totally against any government subsidies of abortion. Uh, but it's basically just a hands-off position. But those would be anathema to a lot of Republicans. So. Well, particularly the socially conservative Republicans, who are the ones that have the biggest problem with Donald Trump. Sure. And, of course, many Republicans are anti-tax or call themselves anti-tax. But to actually abolish the IRS, which some of the Republican candidates for president this year were supporting, 
to actually abolish the IRS uh, and replace it with it's not clear what. Uh, what does that do for the support of the military? Many Republicans consider the job of the federal government to be the military and supporting the military first and foremost. That is not the Libertarian Party position. So while they do have two former Republicans as their nominees, Across the board, it seems to me that anyone who is really seriously a Republican or was a supporter of one of these other Republican candidates other than Donald Trump is going to have a hard time looking at that platform. They might find Gary Johnson and William Weld attractive personally. They might think that they look like smart guys who would do a good job. But that platform is going to be a real sticking point. And likewise, a disaffected Democrat might have to swallow very hard to accept the dramatic downsizing of Social Security, the questioning of the Civil Rights Act and, and other parts of the libertarian platform. Yeah, I can't imagine somebody who supports Bernie Sanders, who is very, very, very strong on Social Security, would be like, yeah, OK, let's go for those people that want to eliminate it. So I would say in the end, their greatest appeal is probably to that large and growing proportion of Americans who consider themselves independents and really don't want to be bound to what was the FDR formula or the Ronald Reagan formula or even the George W. Bush or the Bill Clinton formula. Okay, you mentioned Ralph Nader. Just quickly, who was Ralph Nader and how did he affect the 2000 election? Ralph Nader, noted auto safety enthusiast. Right. He was a consumer advocate and a generally a, con- a gadfly to the political system through the 70s and 80s and 90s. 90s. And, and always trying to be taken more seriously as a political figure as well as all those things. And he ran for president in 2000, was the nominee of the Green Party. And while he wasn't on the ballot, I don't believe, in every state, he was on the ballot in some big states, including Florida. Why did that matter? Because he got enough votes. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of votes, I think 90,000. No, no, I oh, think it was, it was less than 100. But, okay. it was, but it was something approaching six figures in a big state like Florida. Wasn't going to put him anywhere near competing for win the state, of course. But it raised a very large question mark when that state eventually went for George W. Bush by 537 votes out of the entire state, thereby tossing its electoral college vote to George W. Bush and making him president. Ralph Nader's vote had it netted out to the more leftish candidate in Al Gore, obviously some debate there. Ralph Nader always said there was no difference between Gore and Bush. But had it done so, there never would have been a George W. Bush presidency. Now, there were other factors, including totally weird ballot situations in Florida, long lines in Florida, a Democratic Party in Florida that maybe didn't do the best job it possibly could have done, Al Gore's amazing magnetism, and the Supreme Court. All those things are true. However, had there not been that large vote for Ralph Nader, and if one assumes that would have netted out at least a thousand or two votes for Al Gore, or five hundred thirty-eight, then all then all of those other factors, real and substantial as they are, were would not have mattered. Are there states where these third-party candidates could be a factor? Could I don't know that there's a state where they could win, but is there a state where they could affect either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump's chances of being president? Oh, absolutely. Any any close state. Any swing state. You know, depending on whom you ask, there are anywhere from 7 to 13 swing states that could go either way in November. The rest of them are pretty much locked down red or blue. But in that 7 to 13 states, it is conceivable that a few thousand votes could make the difference. We have seen, in addition to Florida in 2000, we've seen a New Mexico race in the presidential contest decided by fewer than a thousand votes. Look, up in the sky, there's a meteor. wonder if it's going to hit. You know what I like about that metaphor? <laughs> what I like about that metaphor 
isn't it the meteor way back that wiped out the dinosaurs? <laughs> so aren't the Republicans and Democrats the dinosaurs now? There you go. All right. I think that's it for the NPR Politics Podcast. And as always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org or on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.